0: Well, before I got married, I was uh, house-sitting for a very wealthy family um, in my previous church. And uh, so I was living in a very large house, and it had most of their stuff in it. And obviously, I had to bring my stuff in it when I moved in. And uh, one thing that I noticed once I got married was that before I got married, everything I owned was uh, 100% efficient. And what I mean by that was I only owned that which I absolutely needed. The only thing that I brought into that house, the only stuff I brought into that house, were things that had immediate, constant, daily value to me. And... It didn't, it didn't really matter what they looked like. If, if the cup didn't have a hole and it didn't leak water, then I used that cup and I didn't need another cup. Right? And if there was no cracks in the plates and it held my food, then and a lot of times they were paper plates and they didn't have cracks, so they were perfect. I, I just had what I needed. And, and an additional thing I noticed was I always had the, the cheapest possible things. Uh, If I'm at the store and I see two plates and one of them is $10 more expensive than the other one, the decision is very easy for me which one I want at that point. Color doesn't matter. Nothing else really mattered. And then I got married. (laughs) And uh, I noticed that I married someone who, who is, I think, has a special gift for interior design and interior decoration. And now suddenly I have things in my house that don't necessarily need to be there. Uh, we have a set of like fake flowers that I feel like kind of look like they come from a sci-fi movie. I don't even know what they're supposed to be resembling, but they look really good. My wife's great at it, and it looks fantastic, and so we keep them up. And, And now we have things like cups, which I'm allowed to use when we're just having dinner together, but when people come over, we're not allowed to use those cups even anymore, and we have to give them special cups, even though my cups work perfectly fine. And after reading our text this evening, I realized that I think God operates his church a lot more like Layla operates our household than me. Uh, if you will open up your Bibles to Second Timothy chapter 2, we are going to see how Paul uses the different kinds of vessels or uh, decorations, materials, tools within a household as a great metaphor for the church and our responsibility in it. 2 Timothy chapter 2, if you would begin in verse 20 with me, we will read through the end of chapter 2, and I would encourage you to follow along, for these are the very words of God. Now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay, some for honorable use and some for dishonorable Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. So flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with all those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, Patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. So, before we break this down, I want us first just to look at the structure of Paul's text here. I want us to look at the structure of his argument. In verses 20 through really 23, Paul is making his point. He's 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 giving Timothy a command. In verse 24 through 26 essentially becomes a, a an immediate practical example of that point of of uh, that he's called Timothy to. So he gives Timothy, here's what you need to believe, and then he immediately tells him and if you believe it, if you put this into practice, this is what can happen. So he sort of gives Timothy a thesis statement of a point of doctrine and then he applies it to Timothy's circumstances immediately. And what is that point of doctrine? Well, uh, my contention is that Paul, and we'll go through the text and show this, but Paul is essentially telling Timothy here that obedience makes us useful to God. Holiness makes us useful to God. God is more prepared and more willing to use Christians who are pursuing obedience, who are living obedient lives. He is more willing and more prepared to use them in his service than Christians who are not fighting sin regularly obedience makes us useful to God. That's the point that he's getting, and then he shows Timothy how that can work in Timothy's life. So let's go to the point. He begins with a metaphor. If you recall from last week, he ended by two Old Testament citations, and the last one in verse 19 was everyone who names the name of the Lord departs from iniquity. And so he's sort of running from that theme from last week. So so that's sort of the overall context. This concept of departing from iniquity fleeing sin and Paul's point is when you do this you are now more ready to be used by God in amazing ways and he, he begins that with the metaphor in verse 20 he says now in a great house there are not only vessels of gold and silver but also of wood and clay some for honorable use and some for dishonorable use now we, we don't want to read too much into those th- those sound like really harsh words dishonorable use um, but that's just sort of uh, the piety of the language coming out his point is not to completely bash vague these clay vessels he's just simply trying to make a point that unlike my bachelor life in a great house you typically have things which are supposed to be better than others they're supposed to be more used than others they're silver and gold and they're for special occasions and then you have common things and in their context this was demonstrated by things which were made of clay and pot versus things made of gold and silver. So the point was not so much to bash or to really come after the clay, as much as it is just to show that when a master owns this great house, within it there's always really honorable, precious, valuable things and things which aren't as useful. And so here's the point they he makes. We've got this great house. We've got vessels of gold and silver. And then we've got vessels of wood and clay. Some for honorable use. Some for dishonorable use. And then he ends it. The end of verse 21. By talking about how these different things are useful to the master of the house. Ready for good work. So let's unbreak the metaphor here. The house is. Although some people might try to read this as the, the world and the people in it. The house is likely the church. So here we sort of have a metaphor of the church being this great house and the master of that house is obviously God. So God is Lord over the church. He's Lord over this great house and then within the house there are gold and silver vessels and vessels for honorable use and there's clay and, and wooden vessels, vessels for dishonorable use and notice what he says in verse 21. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable he will be a vessel for honorable use so paul here is under the impression that whatever kind of vessel you are within the house of god you're able and this is this is difficult language for christians who love grace and who love giving god all glory and credit because notice he doesn't say god will cleanse you he says cleanse yourself and so that's why I would really encourage us not to try to interpret this as the dishonorable use being unbelievers coming to faith. I don't think that's happening here because if, if, if when you talk about being cleansed of your sins, that's not something you can do. You can't cleanse yourself from your sins. Only the power of God can do that. So we're talking about something slightly different here because Paul is calling the vessels in the house to cleanse themselves, to make yourselves clean. So we're not talking about righteousness and getting into heaven. We are talking about, as he says, you can be transferred from a, a, a vessel that God has little use for To a more honorable vessel, gold and silver, which God has more use for. So you cleanse yourself, verse 21. If anyone cleanses himself from what is dishonorable, he will be a vessel for honorable use. And so the whole point, remember, goes back to verse 19. And it will be repeated in verse 22. This concept of cleansing is what? Departing from iniquity. Or as verse 22 says, fleeing youthful passions and pursuing righteousness. So we'll break that down more, but I just really want us to understand the metaphor here. Christians in God's great house can either be more usable by God or less usable by God. And if you want to be more usable by God, you need to flee from youthful passions and pursue righteousness. You need to cleanse yourself by departing from iniquity. So now you see where I'm getting my thesis statement from. Obedient Christians are more ready to be used by God. Because that's exactly what he says after verse 21. After we cleanse ourselves from what is dishonorable, then we will be a vessel for honorable use, set apart as holy, useful to the master of the house, ready for every good work. this really teaches us something amazing about God. And this is where some of the the analogy that I began with falls short a little bit. Um, Because notice how Paul is not here describing obedient Christians as trophies. They're not trophies. It's not as if God says, yeah, I've got these Christians in the house, but these ones are really obedient. These are my silver and gold. So what am I going to do? I'm going to put them in my trophy case, and they're just going to sit there, and everyone can marvel at them. What is it that we are desiring to, to become? Servants useful to be used by God. So the Christian life is not in which we're trying to become God's trophy. We're setting ourselves apart so that we can become his hands and his feet. We can become those useful tools in the house that we prefer over other things. Here's, here's potentially a more specific example than what I, the general one I began with. Uh, before I got married, I had lots of Tupperware f- to bring work, food to work and stuff, and I always just bought the, the cheapest Tupperware I possibly could, and I would inherit stuff from friends, and there was plastic, and it was terrible, and, but it, you know it got the job done. Once I got married, my wife insisted that we buy this glass Tupperware with these fancy rubber lids. And at first, you know, I kind of resisted because they're obviously a little bit more money than the cheap plastic ones. I, I didn't want to do that, but I figured I'd trust her, so we got them. And now, and she's very patient because these are the really expensive ones that I tend to bring to work and forget to bring home. So she's very patient with me. You can be praying for her. However, the point is, is I slowly began to realize these are actually much more useful and I prefer using them now. I don't have to worry about the plastic melting in the microwave. I don't have to worry about the seal not being tight enough. They're, they're easier to eat from. I mean, I, I, the list is actually pretty long as to how much I've realized that overall, this, this new glass Tupperware is way better than what I used to be using. And so Paul is essentially saying, if I can use my own analogy, you can be 50 cent plastic Tupperware, or you can be the kind of Tupperware that's really easy and useful and beneficial for God to use. You can be glass Tupperware. Cleanse yourself from the plastic, become the glass. That's essentially what Paul's saying. But the the point I'm trying to emphasize is he's saying that there are some vessels in the house that the master likes using. In the same way that we have this plastic Tupperware in our house, and we use it occasionally, but we don't prefer that. We want to use the good stuff. And Paul is essentially telling Timothy here, God wants to use the good stuff. He wants to use the good stuff. So, so be the good stuff. Cleanse yourself of the dishonorable. Become the honorable so that you can be set apart as holy and useful for every good work. God wants to put us to work. He doesn't want to throw us in the trophy case. He wants us to be like the Tupperware. He wants to get use out of us. He wants us to be high quality Christians that he can use for the kingdom of God over and over and over again. And the way that we do that is we, as we saw in verse 19, depart from iniquity. And then he tells Timothy in verse 22, so, so flee. So again, that's, that's him saying, In light of this principle, so how do you do it? He just got done telling Timothy, I want you to be this honorable vessel in the house of God. I want God to use you. I want you to be set apart as ready for every good work, useful to the master. So how do you do that? Well, so, verse 22, flee youthful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. So he tells Timothy, here's how you are useful. Flee your youthful passions. Now, I think typically when we read a a verse like that and we see youth and passion together, what probably comes to mind is sensuality. Uh, And and I think that's obviously part of it. but, But Paul sort of tells us more specifically the kind of youthful passions that are prone to take Timothy captive. And this isn't to say this is an exhaustive list, uh, but it is to say that generally this is what Paul is concerned about. We will come back to these verses in more detail soon, but I want you to look at verse um, 24, for example. Or 23, forgive me. Have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know that they breed quarrels. They, you know that they breed quarrels. Verse 24, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So part of Timothy's youthful passions, these passions which are prone especially to younger people, but I I think probably the, the idea here is that typically as we grow in our Christian life, and the Holy Spirit is sanctifying us. Mature Christians, Christ, people who have been Christians for a long time, have a better handle on their emotions. So this idea, I think, is really more so, it is talking about Timothy's youth. Timothy, we know from the last letter, is, is a young relative for his job and for his role. He's a young man. But I think the idea here is all sin, in some way, is a youthful or immature passion. I don't think that we ever sin and God would look at that and go say, yeah, it was a sin, but I mean that was a really mature thing to do. That was a really mature, reasonable way to handle. No, sin is by its very nature a demonstration of not being in control and not being in control is always an aspect that should belong to youth and not to maturity. So I, I do believe that in certain sense, all sin could be qualified as youthful passions. Um, but obviously, Timothy, being a young man, is probably more prone to these youthful passions. And he describes the first one as being uh, contentious, right? argumentative. Ar- argument, ar- being, being a contentious, argumentative person is not godly. Because he tells Timothy, I want you to flee these useful passions and pursue righteousness, faith, and love. And he starts to give him these examples. So don't have anything to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels, and the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome. So he doesn't want Timothy to be the kind of pastor who's just constantly debating and bickering with people. That's not godly. That that's 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 plastic Tupperware. That that's, that, that's not what God wants. But he also sees a youthful passion not just as contentiousness, but also harshness. So don't be contentious, but what rather th- should you do? Halfway through verse 24, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. You see words kind and gentle in there. That's the good stuff. He doesn't want Timothy to be harsh. To be harsh with people who maybe just don't understand or who are teaching something they shouldn't teach or who are bickering within his church Timothy could lash out in passion and harshness and crack the whip on these people but God says no or Paul got through Paul says no be, be, be patient be kind be gentle And then he also talks about this idea of impatience, contentiousness, harshness, and and impatience are the three primary youthful passions he draws Timothy's attention to. He tells him to patiently endure evil, the end of verse 24, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. There's this idea of anytime we're trying to correct people or trying to uh, sort of come against false teaching, oftentimes there will be resistance, oftentimes there will be slander and ad hominem, there will be anger, people will get, and Timothy's job is not to be impatient and lose his temper in those, it's to be, just endure it, be patient. So we see that this, this idea of youthful passions is not so much just sensuality, which is common to youthful men, but rather it's, 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 it's much more broad, and Timothy is called to flee these things, That is how he is to cleanse himself and set himself apart for honorable use by fleeing these useful passions and instead pursuing things like righteousness, faith, love, and peace. So again, we see our our thesis statement here, if you will. Flee sin, pursue righteousness, and when you do that, you make yourself ready to be used by God. We cleanse ourselves into honorable vessels that are ready for every good work. And so that is what Paul is calling Timothy to. He's reminding Timothy here that obedience makes us useful to God. And notice that this is not just for Timothy because what does he say at the the end of verse 22? Timothy is to do these things along along with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And that goes, again, that takes us back to verse 19. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, departs from iniquity. So this is not just like a special thing for pastors. It's not just when a pastor pursues obedience, then he becomes really valuable at his job. No, no. Paul is saying, you are just one example of what is true for all Christians. No matter your vocation, no matter your stage in life, if you truly, sincerely call on the name of the Lord from a pure heart, it is your job then to flee sin and pursue righteousness. And when you do that, you make yourself useful to the kingdom of God. This is a principle for all people, not just pastors. However, because he is writing to a pastor, and this, we've talked about this as a very personal, intimate letter, probably even more so than 1 Timothy, although this still was a corporate letter, he decides to take this principle And he shows Timothy an immediate application of how it could work. Give me something specific, Paul. Take this broad, okay, obedience makes me useful. I get it. And Paul says, well, let me show you how it could help you. So that's when we go back to verses 23 through the end. He says, have nothing to do with foolish and ignorant controversies. You know they breed quarrels. If you've been with us, this is obvious, this is a constant theme in both letters. Paul keeps coming back to these, these meaningless disputes, these debates over words, these quarrels. And again, we talked about, we, we don't have a lot of context to know exactly the nature of these debates. But Paul's coming back to them over and over again. So the, the, what we can say with confidence is that for some reason within Timothy's church, there is just constant dispute, constant argumentation. And so Paul takes this broad principle of make yourself useful to God by obedience and he says, here's how you can solve this issue in your church. You can make yourself, God wants to use you to edify this church. So pursue obedience and God can use you. And look at what he says. Have nothing to do with foolish, ignorant controversies. This, Paul's speaking harshly here. The, the Greek word is moros. He describes these controversies here as, as moros over foolish. And that's where we get our English word moron from. Paul says these, are, these, these arguments are moronic. Some, trans, some of your translations might even put the word stupid in there. They are stupid, moronic, foolish arguments. These arguments are a waste of time and they're ignorant. These people don't even really know what they're talking about, but they make it look like they do. These foolish, ignorant arguments, he says to avoid them, have nothing to do with them, so that you can avoid quarreling. And then he says in verse 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So notice, he doesn't tell Timothy to get out of the fight altogether, he doesn't tell Timothy anytime time there's a controversy or any time there's a debate or any time there's false teaching, you should just ignore it. That is not the apostolic command. He, but rather, he is far more concerned with how Timothy conducts himself within debates than he is with just avoiding the debate altogether. He doesn't tell Timothy just to back off and let these people be. No, Timothy is supposed to be teaching them what's true. He's supposed to be correcting them. But this is part of how Timothy flees sin and pursues righteousness and makes himself useful to God. God is concerned with how he goes about that duty. Okay, so you need, as the pastor, you need to step in here. And you need to help them understand which arguments are not useful to be had. You need to teach them truth and you need to correct them when they're wrong. But God cares very much about how Timothy does that. And we're going to see how Timothy does that has a direct effect as to the benefits that will come from it. How is it that he is to go about it? And he tells him to be kind, to be patient, and to correct his opponents with gentleness. And so that's a general principle for us. I would just like to remind all of us that how we speak truth matters. We have to be very, very careful of not falling into this idea where, you know, truth matters and we live in a culture that they don't value truth and truth matters and truth matters. And, and that is very true. But part of the truth that matters is that how we speak truth matters. Paul says, the, free me, the Bible says that we are to speak the truth in love. Paul writes that. He, he doesn't just care that we speak truth, but there is a godly, mature way to speak truth. And he tells Timothy, you need to be patient. You need to be gentle. You need to be kind. You need to be educated. And that's, I think, a principle for all of us, to be patient and endure evil with patience, to be educated in the things that we're saying. Right? He tells Timothy, you need to be able to teach. So this is a good principle. If you don't know what you're talking about, don't join the debate. Timothy needs to be able to teach, he needs to know the truth, and then he needs to correct people, but he doesn't do so in a harsh, impatient, ungentle way. He corrects people with patience and kindness and gentleness. And now here's the point. So how does God use that then? If Timothy does that, then what does he say? Look at 25B. Look at second half of 25. If Timothy corrects his opponents with gentleness, God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to a knowledge of the truth. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading the knowledge to. I love how, how, when I come in in the mornings for our Bible study, it amazes me how often those conversations will be. Directly relevant to the sermon. And this morning we had a conversation about the nature of evidence and unbelief. And how does unbelief, does evidence ever convince people? Like we were talking about there's all this evidence for the the authority of scripture. There's all this evidence for the truth of God's word. And yet people see this evidence and they, they still almost never come to faith because of it. And so we were talking about it. And one of the things we were trying to emphasize is that, no, on the one hand, evidence itself cannot change a person. The, the same wicked, unbelieving heart that goes into the Bible is the same wicked, unbelieving heart that goes into the science room. It's the same unbelieving, wicked heart that goes into the archaeological study. Uh, we, we, nobody is looking at anything neutrally. We're we all being affected by our desires and our worldviews. So there's a sense in which the evidence doesn't really do much, but we also recognize that, that by itself, but that God can use it. And I think this is directly relevant to what we're seeing here. And here's why. Because notice how there's a sense in which what Timothy says and how he says it is in fact changing people's hearts. Like the the evidence, the debate is working. Because again, what does he say? The Lord's servant, back to 24, must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone, able to teach Uh, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. So if Timothy corrects people, if he teaches them the truth, and he does it in love, then repentance can follow. The implication here is that if Timothy goes about in an ignorant way, if he goes about in an impatient way, if he goes about in a harsh way, he ought not to expect these people to respond appropriately. So this takes us back to our principle. If you've got the pastor who is, who is fleeing sin, making himself useful, then that pastor will in fact be more readily used by God to bring people to repentance. As the pastor who's harsh and impatient and ignorant, he has no reason when he steps into these people's lives to expect any kind of change. So you see, God wants to use the holy pastor, not the wood and the clay. So we do see that there's a sense in which the the means on earth have an effect. The the evidence, the correction, the teaching, the debate, these things can change people. Timothy can bring people to repentance if he corrects them, if he he teaches them, and he does so in the right manner. So, So Timothy can, in fact, bring the debate. But notice that it doesn't technically say Timothy is the one changing their hearts. Who is the one that's actually changing their hearts? That God may perhaps grant them repentance. So God is using the debate. He's using the teaching to bring about what only he can do. So does evidence change someone's heart? No. Can God use evidence to change someone's heart? Yes. Will debating a person ever change their mind? No. But can God use your debate and how you debate to change their mind? Yes. But then there's a third qualification we also need to look at. Notice that Paul does not speak of this as a guarantee. He does not say, listen, if you'd go about this rightly, 100%, they're getting saved. No, what does he say? "If If you flee these youthful passions and pursue righteousness and the application of that in your current circumstances, you correct these people with gentleness, then God may perhaps grant them. And let me tell you, that little phrase right there, should be very comforting to us. And it's comforting us in two different ways. It takes away our guilt, and on the flip side, it takes away our pride. That phrase right there takes away our guilt, and it takes away our pride. How does it take away our guilt? Well, because it reminds us that at the end of the day, even though God does call you to to live a righteous life and that if you are pursuing righteousness, He can use you more effectively, at the end of the day, the repentance was bestowed by God, not by you. You are not responsible for saving anybody. So when you go about and preach the truth to someone and you do it in, a, in, in an educated, patient, godly, gentle way and they still reject it, you don't have to go home sweating, buried in guilt. What did I do wrong? They should have been saved. No, because Paul says even when Timothy does it right, maybe God will grant repentance. But on the, on the flip side, it also takes away our pride. Because guess what it also doesn't allow you to do? Let's say you do go about it in a good, educated, godly way and they do get saved. Do you go home talking about how great you are? How many people did you save last week? I correctly dealt with my opponents. I was patient, I was gentle and I was just so good at my job that they couldn't help but get saved. No, because it's not you bestowing repentance. It's God. So understanding that God all Paul's saying here is that righteous vessels are the vessels God wants to use. He's not saying he necessarily will use you even in your righteousness. And he's not saying that God can't save people in other ways. His simple point is this. If you cleanse yourself, if you, pursue, if you, if you put to death the sins of the flesh, if you pursue righteousness, then God is more likely to use you. And he's showing Timothy that God might bring repentance to these people. And this this also is important for us just on a deeper theological level to understand. In our Wednesday night class, we've been talking, we just got done talking about the nature of man. And we talked about what we call total depravity. And this was a text I wanted to get to, but we kind of ran out of time and I figured we'll preach on it. So here we are. Notice that repentance is not something you muster. Right? When we call people to repentance and faith, We are not calling the natural man to produce their own faith, to produce their own repentance. When someone comes to repentance and faith, Paul here interprets that as a gift from God. That faith that you are exercising to God was something He granted you. That repentance that you are now repenting toward God, repenting from sin, towards Paul says God granted that to you. That's a gift. See, faith, repentance, and the salvation that comes from these, salvation is not a reward, a gift that we're given because of our repentance. Salvation and repentance are both the gift. That's why in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul says that very, very thing that being saved by grace through faith is the gift of God. The whole process, the whole thing is the gift your faith, your repentance, your salvation, these are all gracious gifts of God. And Paul says that every person in this room has the opportunity to be used by God to bestow that gift to people. Just like God can use Timothy to bring repentance to these opposers in his church, God can use all who call upon the name of the Lord. If you would pursue righteousness, he can use you to do amazing things in the kingdom of God. But I would say that if we're not willing to turn from sin, if we're not willing to cleanse ourselves, then God is likely not going to use us to help, as it says, help people come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And, and also notice that repentance leads to a knowledge of the truth. We tend to think that you have to come to a knowledge of the truth in order to repent. Right? I have to understand the truth. Okay, I get it. I guess I'll repent now. But the Bible says faith comes before Repentance comes before it. God has to grant you repentance and then through that new heart, through that change, through that miraculous work of God, you're now capable of seeing what you never saw before. Your repentance is what gives you sight to the knowledge of truth. And again, all of this is being done as victory snatching people away from Satan. This is glorious work that Timothy is called to. It's glorious work that God is doing through his people and through his church. And the Bible tells us back in verse 22 that this is the case for all who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Every one of us has the opportunity to make wonderful outcomes happen in the kingdom of God. But again, we do so knowing that it's ultimately God doing it through us. That we don't get to take any of the credit. We also shouldn't take any of the blame. It really is a beautiful truth. I, I just want to end before we conclude with a summary by showing that I think I've experienced this to some degree in, in my own life. Uh, I, I, I've been in a pastoral context before with a friend of mine who came to me because his life was just falling apart. And his marriage was crumbling. And he was, was repentant and he was admitting to me that, that, that part of why his marriage was crumbling was because he was just in a state of sin. This is in my previous context, by the way. This is, this is not happening here. He, he, was just, he was admitting and, and confessing all of these sins. He had fallen into this lifestyle of sin. And so as, as he and I sat and we met for weeks, we would meet for weeks. And every time we'd meet, you know, almost never on my mind. It was almost never on my mind to sort of call him to go out and be used by God in amazing ways. Because there was this, and I wasn't necessarily thinking about this text, but it just almost seemed obvious. This, this is a person who's really not in a position to be going out leading people in faith and being used. He, he needs to fix his own life first. And I think this is the principle we've seen over and over again why throughout First and Second Timothy and Titus, Paul is always telling pastors that pastors are called to a higher standard, because how can they be expected if their house is crumbling, if their family's falling apart, if their personal lives are falling apart, how can you go to them for counseling? They're not even in the right state of mind to help you when their lives are falling apart. And I think we see this again if, if when we are when we are just living in sin, in open rebellion, in brokenness. That's not a vessel that's ready to go out and do amazing things for the kingdom of God. It can. I'm, I'm not saying broken, sinful people have never been used by God. I'm not saying that. But generally speaking, when I was meeting with this person, the, the, the concept was, let's get you healthy, let's get your marriage healthy, and then once you guys are healthy and repentant and to, to, then we can start talking about how are you serving the Lord? How are you leading people to the faith? How are you blessing your church? So I sort of saw firsthand this important principle of when we are living in sin, we are not a vessel that's really ready to be used by God in amazing ways. We can. Again, I'm I'm not trying to limit the power of God. He can, of course. But the text in front of us, rather than thinking of hypotheticals, the text in front of us is reminding us that if we're living in sin, if we're clinging to iniquity rather than departing from it, that's not a vessel within the house of God that God's saying, I want to put this to work every day. And so, in general, in the conclusion, if you will, I would call you this week to pray. What does this look like for you in your context? We saw how it, how it might look for Timothy. Timothy might bring people to repentance through the power of God, to a knowledge of the truth by correcting them and being kind and gracious and loving to them. How can God use you in your context? Is there any sin, unconfessed sin in your life that maybe is preventing you from being used by God to a greater capacity than you're being used? I would call you this week to meditate on that and think of that. How can I cleanse myself to become a more honorable vessel than I am? How can I be used by God in greater ways than I'm being used? Are we mortifying sin? Are we killing sin? Are we trying to be useful vessels in the master's house? And lastly, I would just call us may this in and of itself be a deep desire. I would ask us, do we even have a desire to be used by God? Isn't that such an amazing privilege we have as children of God? That he doesn't just say, "Okay, I've saved you. You're in my family now. Now sit back. Take a seat. You're you're in the club. You're in the club now. Just just wait for heaven." He doesn't say that. He says, "You're part of my family now. I want to use you. I want to put you to work." That's a blessing. Do we even have that desire? I'll call us to meditate and pray about that this week that we would ask by the power of the Spirit that God would give us huge hearts that long to be used by Him. I want to be your hands and your feet. I want to be the instrument in your hand that you use to do amazing things in the kingdom. And we remember this we will never be overwhelmed with pride and we will never be overwhelmed with guilt even if things don't go well. But may we have that desire to be used by God. May we have that desire to cleanse ourselves from the dishonorable and become the honorable. May we have that desire to pursue obedience and in that process make ourselves more useful to God.